awesome. Look at this. Someone left me coffee this morning. This is, wow. Oh, there's nothing in here. Forget it. All right. I got really excited for a minute there. Was, well, we are, uh, we are making our way through the uh, book of Philippians. We're five weeks in. And uh, I don't know, it seems like this weekend, I was, Scott and I were talking last night, like last night this, the congregation was just very con- contemplative, <laughs> very like quiet. We're just, I guess it's one of those weekends, maybe it's fall or something like that. Um, but uh, so I was thinking, I guess it was 10 days ago, it was a Thursday, um, and Thursday and Fridays are my, they're my weekends. And uh, I, had, uh, I had an appointment to go see the eye doctor on, on that Thursday. And so I, those appointments, I have these twice a year. They're just very long, drawn-out days. It's an, actually an entire day thing because of my macular degeneration and some other stuff. So I go in for a lot of testing. And, and uh, so it was in the morning, and I was getting ready for the day, and my phone rang. And uh, it was our, our middle child, Nick. And Nick was on his way to college classes. And uh, so I knew that couldn't be right because when I looked at my watch I'm like well he should be on the 14 about halfway there if he's calling me right parents you know what I'm talking about like this is not going to be a good call right so I take a breath and I answer the phone and he says dad I've been in an accident and I'm on the 14 and so I'm like so all right how are you do you have all your fingers and toes he's like yeah (laughs) he's like so what happened basically was he was driving down the 14 during rush hour heading west got to 164th and all the cars in front of him slowed down but the cars in back of him did and he kind of got caught in the middle and there was a, <clears throat> I think it was a six car pile up. So one car hit the next, hit the next, next. And he was at the end of the line and thankfully there was enough space between him and the car in front of him that he didn't hit anybody. But it was kind of a, you know, he said he just got, he, he didn't even see it coming and then he looked in his, heard, heard a noise, looked in the rearview mirror, saw the car in back of him kind of launch forward. But the guy tried to avoid hitting him. Uh, veered towards the middle uh he was in the fast lane hit the concrete barrier and bounced back and and hit nick and so i asked nick you know how how are you he's like yeah i'm I'm okay he's like dad it's terrible i got out of the car i was kind of stunned i got out first thing i see is like moms carrying their infants out of their you know cars and running to the curb and it was just he was just really upset obviously and and then i asked the question that every dad will ask right tell me it's not just me but i'm paying for it every day i said so how's the car I'm never going to hear the end of that. He's like, yeah, dad, I don't think the car. He said, well, I drove it to the side of the road and it's drivable, but it's a, it's an old car. And he's like, you know, it's probably totaled for sure. And, and uh, of course I was like, yeah, I don't care about the car. I only care about you. Um, so anyways, I'm getting ready for my appointment. I said, well, do you think you can drive it home? He's like, yeah, I can, I can definitely drive it home. Um, I'll head that way. I said, well, I'll get ready and, and, and you should be home before I am. If, if you're not, I'll cancel the appointment, come find you. He came home. Uh, yeah, the car was definitely totaled. Thankfully, Nick was not. He was okay. And uh, so I kind of had that going, just my adrenaline pumping, got in the car, went to my um, eye appointment, went through a whole bunch of testing over several hours and the whole thing. And, and uh, when I'm done, I'm sitting in the, in the chair waiting to meet with the doctor to get all the results. And I'm actually feeling really, really good at this point because um, I've kind of been dealing with certain eye issues over the years, and over the last year, uh, the, especially the pressure in my eyes has been going down, which is a really good sign. That's all great. And I'm just really excited to get some good news, and the doctor comes in, and she sits down, and she says, well, I looked at your test results, and I think we ought to just call it what it is. You have glaucoma, and uh, we're just going to, you know, we're going to have to deal with that. So I was just kind of sitting there stunned because I was not expecting this at all. And so um, she didn't really have a great bedside manner. She's just like, so, you know, we're just going to have to get going because your eyes are a huge mess. Um, I don't know what you did to them. So, you know, let's kind of get this. So I'm just sitting there in the chair, like holding on, and then she leaves, and an assistant comes in because we've got to do some more testing. 
And this is what happens next. The assistant's sitting down, she's filling out some paperwork, and she looks at me and she says, uh, so did you take the day off for this? Now, at that point, it's always like a timeout for me. This happens to me all the time. Uh, it happened to me the week before. I was at the dentist's office, getting my teeth cleaned. Same discussion when somebody says, did you take today off for this appointment? So now I tell you this because in my mind, th there are two roads. Um, the, the conversation is about to go down one or the other. I could say, no, I didn't. And then they'll just assume I'm on break or something and there's no more conversation that'd be had there. But if I say, well, actually, this is my day off. I'm off on Thursday and Fridays. That's my weekend. It always leads to the next question, always. So I know it's where it's going to go. Oh, well, what do you do? Answer, you know, for the last quarter of a decade has been, I'm a pastor, you know? And then the next question is always the same. Where are you pastor at? And again, my answer is the same. It's been for 25 years. I'm the pastor of Gateway Church. And then they'll always ask the next question. Boom, boom, boom. Always the same discussion. Oh, so what's that about? Like, what do you guys believe? And then that always leads to a gospel conversation, a chance to share the gospel with somebody every time. It's just super easy. Like in that respect, sometimes you, you know, you'll tell me, it's so hard, Pastor, to know how to get the gospel in the conversation. I don't ever have that issue. I just have to figure out a way for them to realize it's my weekend, and then we're going to talk about Jesus. And, but the problem was, at this moment, I'm sitting in the chair and I'm so overwhelmed by all the, just everything that's happened that morning that I'm not sure I want to go down that road. Have you ever felt like that? Like, I just don't know. I just want to feel bad for me, and I want it to all be about me, and could we have professional mourners come in and just feel bad for me? I just really, I, and I knew if I answered her question the way I typically do that, it wouldn't be about me at all. It would just all be about Jesus. <laughs> Imagine that. And so, of course, I did the right thing. Um, I told her, you know, that I'm a pastor and that went down that whole way. And, because, and here's what I've discovered. See, at the end of those conversations, you always walk away feeling so good about what just happened. Because if you take the route of I'm going to feel bad and sorry for myself and all this stuff, I can't remember, I can't ever remember going down that road and getting to the end of it and going, that was great. That was like just a really good path to go down. I feel great about my life now. But when you talk about Jesus, it really forces you, doesn't it, to think about what is the most important thing in life? What is life really about? And what do people around me really need to know? Now, Jesus told us, uh, when he was talking to his disciples, he said this, I have said these things to you, this is all the teaching he had been doing, that in me you may have peace. Now, in the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, because I've overcome the world. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, this is life, right? Even for the believer, there's, you're, you're going to get in car accidents, yeah, you're going to have health issues, relational issues, financial issues, you're going to get bad news, life's going to be challenging. And on top of all that, we face trouble when we decide to live boldly for Jesus Christ. And the big question becomes this, will we take heart? Will we, will we take the peace that God offers us? Will we actually believe what Jesus said? Will we believe that he has overcome and that our responses to the things that happen around us can actually be informed by that truth and that, that conviction. So we're in Philippians, and this is, uh, this is very germane to what we're talking about today because this book is written by a guy named Paul who is a type A, uh, entrepreneurial, missionary, theologian, evangelist, and he's in prison. He is a go-getter who has been chained in, in, in a room and his attitude, as we've seen and will see in the weeks to come, is basically, if I have to be in prison, then I'm going to be in prison with purpose, right? I'm going to go down the good road, 
in every conversation, Paul makes this daily decision to be gospel-focused, to trust God, even in his conversations and his attitude to not be self-consumed. And the big idea I want to talk about today is this, that when Christ is proclaimed through us, his joy is increased in us. This is what Paul has found, and this is what I want to talk about today as we dive into the next few verses in this book. And actually, in verse 12 is where we're going to pick it up. And Paul's going to tell us today that we need to be people who are proclaiming the gospel, who are talking about Jesus, who are making that choice in every conversation that's opened us to talk about Christ. In fact, he says we need to be those who are focused on the gospel even when life is hard, even when there are troubles in our life, not just when times are good, but even when times are hard. Notice in verse 12, which is where we pick it up today. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So kind of here's where Paul's going. He says, I want you to know this. And that that phrase in the Greek has the force of, um, I want you to get this. I want you to understand something that you might easily miss or you might not want to really grab hold of or accept. So he says, I want you to know that what has happened to me. Now, what has happened to him is that He's been living boldly for Jesus and now he's in prison. In fact, he's been in prison for four years. And then he says this, and this is the unexpected part. That what has happened to me has really served to advance, that's a key word, to advance the gospel. Now the reason Paul's telling them this is because he knows that they, it might not look like that to outsiders. It might look like the gospel in his life has come to an end, that his gospel ministry has been shut down, that it's been chained to a guard just like he has. And Paul wants him to understand, in fact, that that's not the case. So Paul's talking about the gospel here. And when we talk about the gospel, the word gospel simply means good news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. And in in a letter that Paul had written to the Corinthians, he explained in a few sentences what, in fact, the gospel is. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospels that I, that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received. So Paul says, you know, I didn't figure this out and I didn't make this up. This came to me through Jesus and then I passed it on to you. And it is, don't miss this, it is of first importance. So it is the most important thing that you know. And I know that all of you are extremely brilliant people who know lots of incredible things, but there's nothing you know that's more important or more powerful than the gospel. So what is the gospel? He actually just, he kind of wraps it up this way. He says it's very simple. It's three things, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scripture, that he was buried. It's the second thing, and that he was raised on the third day. It's very simple, that that Christ died, was buried, and rose from the dead. Now, sometimes I'll put it just a little bit you know, I'll add a few more words. Uh, sometimes I like to say that the gospel is this, that Christ came, lived, died, rose, and saves. That he came. That he came to this earth, that he was preexistent. That he, is, he, he lived in eternity past in heaven. That he had created us, but we had turned our back on him in sin. That we were lost in our sin. And that was not okay with him because he loves us. So he came after us. He came down to this earth in a body like ours. We'll talk about this in Philippians 2, how challenging, humbling that was. He lived among us. He taught us about God, taught us truth, went to the cross, died for our sin, but he didn't stay dead. He rose on the third day. This is the big news right here. This is the good news. And when he rose from the dead, and sometimes we forget, in fact, sometimes we hear this so much that it doesn't stir our soul to praise, right? 
When we think about the fact that he rose on the third day, and when he rose from the dead, he conquered sin and he conquered death. The point is this, you have never heard news in your life as good as that right there. Nothing. That somebody conquered sin and somebody conquered death. And when you believe in him, that he gives that to you. That's the best news that you ever heard. And this is the gospel that God has given us. And what Paul says is that the gospel, that message, in fact, is being advanced, even though he's in prison. And he sees it kind of being advanced in two fronts, amongst believers and amongst unbelievers. The first group he talks about is is unbelievers. In verse 13, he says this, "So, so that it, that is the gospel, has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment, in fact, is for Christ. So Paul had spent previously two years in, a, in prison in a dungeon, and now he's in Rome and he's under house arrest. And the way this worked was, um, if you could afford it, you could rent a house and you would be, you'd have to be there, chained to a guard, and, but you'd have to pay for it, or you could go to a dungeon. So the Philippians and others had sent money to Paul so he could afford to do that. And he talks about the imperial guard, or in some of your translations, uh, the praetorium, guard. These are a small group of, of hand-picked soldiers. They are the best of the best. They, uh, they reside in Rome to keep the peace, to guard the emperor. Uh, they serve 12 years. They receive double pay. Uh, they have the highest honors and privileges as Roman citizens. And eventually, this group becomes what are known as kingmakers in Rome. And that is when somebody was contesting uh, to be emperor, if they had the Praetorian Guard behind them, then they had the strongman behind them, and they were absolutely in. But one of the um, less glamorous duties of someone in uh, the Imperial Guard was that they would have to protect or guard imperial prisoners of which Paul was one. And so what that meant was that uh, they had a chain about 18 inches long and it was on the wrist of the prisoner and on the wrist of the guard uh, 24 hours a day. That meant that the prisoner had no privacy. That when he ate, he was, he was chained to a guard. When he slept, he was chained to a guard. When he was, uh, when, when he was praying... When he, was, when he was teaching, as we'll see Paul did, people come visit, he'd teach them. Or when he was visiting with friends, you were never alone. You were chained to that guard. Here's the great part, though. What Paul says, Paul's like, yeah, see, I don't see it that way. <laughs> this is what I love. Paul goes, I don't see this. That I don't, I'm not saying that I, I don't see it that I'm chained to a guard. I see that he's chained to me. That's the way Paul sees it. Paul's like, you know what? Some of you are like, I wish I could find someone to share Jesus with. Paul's like, I always have someone to share Jesus with. And here's the great part. They can't get away from me. They have to listen to everything that happens. In fact, at the end of Acts, the end of Acts ends this way. In chapter 28, it says, it said, Paul lived there, that's in this, uh, in this house, for two years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God chained to a guard, teaching about the Lord Jesus, chained to a guard, with boldness and without any hindrance at all. And every time a guard was changed, it was a fresh prospect for the gospel that Paul got. I, can you imagine? Again, Paul's like, I used to have to go out looking for these people. You know, Now they come to me, they're chained to me, and they, they can't leave. And they had to listen to Paul all day long because 
people could come to this house, the visitors could come, and, and you know, he would talk about how he met Jesus Christ, and the guards would hear that, and about the miracles that he saw God work, and the guards would hear that, and he'd get to talk about the grace of God, and, and the guards would get to see how at peace, here's a guy who's in prison, who doesn't obviously really want to be there, but he's in prison, and he's chained to a guard, and he has all of this peace, and this grace, and this joy in the middle of affliction, and, and I, I'm just kind of imagining, do you think that there were any late night talks like the guards chained to Paul and you know neither one of them can sleep and they just start talking about life and talking about you know Paul's like tell me about your problems and tell me about your family tell me what's going on in the middle of the night and it makes you wonder like what a great strategy that God has see the gospel spreading all over the Roman Empire at this point but God has a strategy for infiltrating the government and that strategy is an inside man. It's Paul in prison. Right? Like, who would come up with a plan like that? How will we get the gospel in the midst of government? Oh, I'll place, an, you know, I'll place Paul in prison. <laughs> that, that's God's plan. And eventually what happens is some of these soldiers begin to get saved. Uh, they talk with their commanders. Some of them get saved. Eventually it makes it all the way up to individuals in Caesar's household. In fact, he's going to end the letter of Philippians this way. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. All the brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you. Especially, I love this is just a little, you know, just so you get especially those of Caesar's household. That's his way of going, can you believe what's happened? We're infiltrating the Roman government from prison, right? This is, and this is God's plan, and Paul gets this, but it's not just that his imprisonment is, in, is reaching non-Christians, it's also encouraging Christians. In verse 14, and most of the brothers, he's talking about uh, believers in Rome, have become confident in the Lord because of my imprisonment, and are much more bold to speak the word without fear. So believers for, for several years now had been persecuted, uh, had been driven out of town, had been thrown in prison, had lost their jobs. They had become very timid in show, uh, sharing their faith. But when the Christians saw Paul in prison and they saw his attitude and his boldness, it, it encouraged them to be bold as well. And so Paul says, not only is the gospel going to unbelievers, but believers are getting bolder in their faith because of what they're seeing. Which begs the question, I mean, when you really study church history, you have to wonder, what has been better for the advancement of the gospel over the last 2,000 years? Times of peace and prosperity for Christians or times of persecution? And while I would never pray for persecution, I can tell you this, the answer is clearly uncomfortable for us. In fact, uh, in Acts chapter 8, there's a story that we looked at about a month ago where um, all the believers so far, they were, uh, people were, were coming to Christ in Jerusalem and um, the church was only in Jerusalem at the time and it was growing and growing and nobody wanted to leave because every day was like a great big, you know, super cool potluck at the church and, and, and people would come and the church was growing and growing but nobody was leaving uh, Jerusalem and taking the, the gospel anywhere. And in Acts chapter one, it shares the story about the persecution that starts. And uh, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Actually, the interesting thing about this story is that Paul was there, but at the time, he wasn't a Christian. He hated Christians, and he hated Jesus, and he was encouraging the persecution. 
Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So what you have here is all the Christians gathered together. Nobody wants to leave, but God wants to get the gospel out. So it's just like a hammer on the church and they scatter. And everywhere they go, they take the gospel. You know, statistics continue to say, even today, that 90% of Christians, 90% have not shared the gospel with someone far from God in the last 12 months. 90% haven't talked with somebody far from Jesus in the last 12 months, in the last year. And you, I, I'm always wrestled with that. Why is that? Is it because we don't care? I don't think it's that. Is it, is it because we lack conviction? Is it because maybe we have enough conviction to come to church on the weekends where it's safe and worship, but not enough conviction to go out where maybe it feels not so safe and tell other people about Jesus? Is it, is it because we don't really believe he's the answer? Is it maybe just because when we leave this place, we're so self-absorbed? Or we're so afraid of what people might think of us if we talk about Jesus? What is it that keeps us from doing it? And, you know, I think in prosperous times, our focus tends to be what we might lose if we talk about Jesus. Don't you think that happens? When you're, when you're doing well, when you're prosperous, it's always like, you know, if I talk about Jesus at work, I could lose my job. If I talk about Jesus with him, I could lose my friend. But in times of persecution, it clarity comes, right? When you've already lost your job, when you've already lost your home, when you've already lost your friends, and you realize there's nothing left to lose. And you start to realize that actually the only thing in life that really matters is the one thing you cannot lose. And that is the love of God in your life. In times of persecution, clarity comes, but it makes you wonder, what will it take? Is that what it will take before all of us start sharing the best news, right? The best news we've ever heard that somebody came and died for our sin and rose from the dead and conquered death and conquered sin. What will it take? And let me ask you this. If you were chosen by God tomorrow, if you were chosen like Paul was chosen to suffer pain or to suffer persecution or to suffer poverty, if God chose that for you tomorrow, if that was his plan, would, would you be defeated by that? Would you be so discouraged by that that you would just give up on God? Or would you live above that? Would you be the kind of person who inspires boldness in other believers? Or would you live the kind of life that actually discourages people? Would you live joyfully? Or would you live without faith? Paul's attitude about his suffering is simply this. Unbelievers are hearing the gospel. Believers are being emboldened. And so I'm all in. Paul's like, I'm totally in. It's completely worth it. And so he says, we share the gospel, even in the midst of troubles. The second thing is, even when there's opposition, even when there are people who don't like what's happening in our life, in spite of opposition. And this might be shocking to you, but you're going to discover that if you decide you're going to have a great big mouth for Jesus, talk about the gospel all the time, not everyone will applaud you. Not everyone will support you in that. And that's what happens to Paul in verse 15. He says, now, in fact, there are some people, uh, the people who he's talking about are preachers, are pastors or elders in churches who are preaching Jesus from envy and rivalry. So let me just explain what's going on here. Um, when Paul came to, to Rome in, in chains, he came with an impressive list of accomplishments. His resume was amazing. He had his, his conversion story about how he came to Jesus, which all on its own is an awesome story. Uh, his, his intellect, 
He was a brilliant man. He was uh, the authority uh, uh, in so many churches. He took the gospel to Asia Minor. He took the gospel to Europe. He had suffered for the gospel. He had proven integrity. And when he arrived in Rome, it was a big deal in the churches. People were like, did you hear Paul's in town and he's living down the street under house arrest and we can go see him and everybody's going to see him and, and to hear him teach and to interact with him. And apparently some of the local church leaders didn't like that. They, 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 didn't, they didn't respond really well. In fact, it says they envied Paul. They were jealous of Paul. They envied his giftedness, his, his intellect, his effectiveness, uh, the amount of respect. I think it was hard for them on the weekend maybe to preach a sermon and then somebody else came up and said, did you hear Paul's in town? Like, I just can't wait to go see. You know, it reminds me of is when, um, when I first came to Gateway, I'd, I'd only preached a few times and so I began preaching on the weekends and I just was really loving studying the word and teaching and just loving it. And then I can remember, especially the first few years I was here, uh, I, would, I would take a weekend and have someone else preach. And I can remember the first time I had somebody else preach. I actually don't remember who it was, but I had them preach. And afterwards, somebody in the congregation came up and said, Pastor, that was the best sermon I've heard in years, right? And I remember like, I'm standing right here. Like I can remember just feeling jealous and envious and like, is my job on the line? Oh no, you know, kind of thing. And, and it took me a while, but this is what's happening here. This is what's happening. They're jealous of Paul. They're, they're envious of Paul. And, and he feels like a threat to their status in their, in their church. Now, scholars say that what was probably happening is leaders were finding ways to say things to their congregation. Things like maybe, you know, Paul was in, maybe Paul's in prison because of some secret sin that we don't know about. Have you ever done that to someone? Like something happens to them. Uh, it looks like life is difficult or whatever it is. And you're like, see, I knew it. I knew it, There's, they did something, I don't know what it is, but, or maybe people were saying things like Paul was in prison because he lacked uh, enough faith for his best life now. Think that ever happens? Like, well, if he just had enough faith, uh, if he named it and claimed it, God would let him out of prison, but poor Paul, he just, he doesn't have enough faith. Uh, some people apparently thought it was proof that they were superior to him because they were free and he was not. In verse 17, he says this, now the former, that is these people who are preaching Christ out of envy for Paul, uh, they were doing it out of selfish ambition. That, that's kind of the bottom line here. Not uh, sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. This is, this is crazy. That word afflict simply means that their goal is to aggravate and intensify Paul's distress. Think about that. They hoped that their gospel preaching on the weekends would rub salt in Paul's wounds because they were jealous of him. Now, commentators have noted, and I think this is important, these people were not preaching heresy. They were not heretics. If so, Paul would have called it out, just like he did it with the Galatians. They're not anti-gospel, they're anti-Paul. That's what's happening here. I mean, it made me think, you know, what happens when there are people in your life who are not anti-Jesus, but they're anti-you? And they have a problem with you, and they say things about you. And they malign you. Do you make it all about you? Are you willing to go to war or die on that hill? Or can you do like Paul and go, you know what? They don't like me, but they like Jesus. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, that's Paul's attitude. But they like Jesus, so I can live with that. 
Now, that wasn't everybody. Some people were, in fact, preaching the gospel out of love, love for God. And I think that the idea here is because they loved Paul. They, they, they loved him and his ministry. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for defense of the gospel. So these are people who understood that Paul was on the front lines of a brand new mission field, if you will, and they loved Paul. And so their goal was Paul's preaching the gospel from inside and they're going to preach it from outside and they're going to work together. And of course, Paul had a lot of reasons to feel down. And I, I mean, we're, we're all there sometimes, aren't we? I mean, Paul was a type A going to get out there. Uh, he's a church planter. He's confined and that's got to be tough for him. He's the preeminent theologian of his day and he can't go out and teach. He had a fruitful ministry. Undoubtedly, he wanted to be out there, but he's not out there. He's, he's chained. He's in prison. And his attitude, every time I read this, is so amazing to me. The, the bottom line is this. Paul says, we need to learn to proclaim the gospel in all situations. And it, not just when things are good and not just when things are bad. But at all times, we need to always be putting the gospel first. In verse 18, this is kind of where he wraps up. He says, what then? Only that in every way, that in every circumstance, in every conversation, in everything that's happening, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. In other words, what Paul says is, if the cause of Christ is being served, e even by impure teachers who didn't like him, Paul was Paul was okay with that. I mean, the irony here is you have people who are preaching out of impure motives, but they're preaching the gospel and people are getting saved. <laughs> and Paul's like, yeah, I could live with that. Because the power is in the gospel. The power is not in the motive of the one proclaiming it. I, whenever, as I, when I got to this point in the sermon, I just couldn't help but think about Jonah. Remember Jonah? I, there, there's Jonah and God goes to Jonah and he says, I want you to go to Nineveh. And I want you to preach to them. I want you to tell them about me. I want you to tell them to repent. And Jonah hates the Ninevites, hates them. He doesn't want to go to Nineveh. He doesn't want to preach to Nineveh. He doesn't want them to repent. And he doesn't want them to know God. But eventually, he just can't, you know, there's no way to get away. If you know the story, the big fish ends up being spit up on the line, goes to Nineveh. But I always picture Jonah kind of walking through town with his head down, kind of quietly going, repent repent, you know, get on your knees. Like he doesn't care. He doesn't want anyone to listen to him. And what happens? Oh, they all repent, right? They all, and they all come to the Lord. And again, it's because it has nothing to do with Jonah. That's not where the, the power is not in the one who proclaims the gospel. It's in the gospel itself. Uh, D.A. Carson said this, Paul's example to us is clear. Put the advance of the gospel at the center of your aspirations. Our own comfort, our bruised feelings, our reputations, our misunderstood motives, all of these are insignificant in comparison with the advance and splendor of the gospel. So let me ask you, what are your aspirations? To make money? To get married? To travel? To see your grandchildren grow up? To find a new job? To retire early? None of these are to be despised. They're not bad things. But the question is whether these aspirations become so devouring of your life that proclaiming the gospel is squeezed to the periphery or is choked out of existence in your life altogether. And this is a good reminder to us that the gospel must be first. So for us as a church, I would say it reminds us that at Gateway, the gospel has to be at the center of everything we do. Now, we can do a lot of good things. We can have great programs and feed people and house people and, and, and clothe people. And we can have 
programs for kids and for youth and provide counseling and visitation and all that. But the gospel has to be at the center of it because it's only the gospel that saves. And the same thing is true for each of us as individuals. The gospel must be first. First in our thoughts, first in our priorities, first in our relationships, in our marriage, in our family. First in our education, in our job, our thoughts, our finances. And like Paul, there will be times when you are chained to difficult circumstances. You'll feel just like Paul, like you're chained to them. And it could be health. It could be uh, facing rejection. It could be a relationship, a family issue, a job, financial. And in those moments, you're going to have to decide. As you're sitting in that chair, right, and the person's asking you, <laughs> is this your day off, right? You're going to have to decide, what am I going to say? Am I going to make it all about me? Or am I going to make it about Christ? When God puts you in a position that you didn't want to be in, what will you do? Will you resist? Will you resent him? Or will you consider the fact that God might have placed you in an undesirable or unwanted situation because it's part of his plan so that you can share the gospel? And you know, this, this is something that every one of us face in life. One of the things that I love about my job is I get to hear all the times when, when you do it right. And I'll, I'll hear stories like this every week. Like one of you will come up and say, you know, I ended up in the hospital this week or I had to have surgery or whatever and, and so I was in the hospital. I hear this all the time. I'm in the hospital and I'm praying, you know, oh Lord, just, you know, let me share the gospel with somebody and my doctor comes in or there's a person in the bed next to me and they ask me a question, you know, is this your day off or whatever. And, and, I, and, and then you'll tell me how you talk to them and, and and what happened, or maybe it's something at work, a difficult situation, and you trusted God. But usually when you share these stories with me, um, you don't want me to share them with everyone, because a lot of times there's just details and stuff, and you don't want that, and I, and I get that. But every now and then, uh, somebody shares their story with me, and I'm always like, you know, everyone needs to know, they need to hear that. They need to, they need to hear what's going on in your life. And this happened with us recently. Um, a dear sister of ours in our church, April Bineski, came to the staff, and, and had asked for prayer. And uh, so we got together as, as a staff and we prayed for her because she's facing um, a very, very difficult situation in her life. And so uh, this week as I was working on the sermon, I was thinking about April. She's been so bold about this. Uh, she's been on Facebook and talking to people. And so I said, hey, you know, would you be willing to, and I know it would be too much to be up here uh, in every service, but maybe a, maybe a video where you could just share a little bit about what's going on in your life um, and your thoughts because I just love the fact that she's reflecting what Paul's saying here. It's difficult, but it's all about the gospel. So let me show you this and, and then we'll close the service. It was unexpected, as is suffering for most of us. We know things come into our life all of us will face things that are hard and how we respond to that will make a difference. I'm April Bineski and I wanted to share with you a little bit about a journey I'm on. Probably last spring, began having some strange physical symptoms, unexplained weight loss, gastro issues, extreme fatigue, tried the usual, you know, get some more exercise, take a nap, drink lots of water, all those things. Eventually needed to go to the doctor. The doctor told Rick, my husband, and I that I had colon cancer. It's a little scary, but we soon took solace in the fact that colon cancer is about 90% curable. With a little surgery, we'll be back on track, things will be good. Then we had the CAT scan. The colon cancer had 
wandered over to the liver, which pretty much flips the statistics. That was a little harder to process. But as I began to think about the future um, and share with my family and friends what was going on, I felt determined this was going to be a meaningful time in my life, uh, that this would not be wasted. If I was gonna go early, that uh, the time would be used well. First of all, there's been a great outpouring of support and care. A friend of mine set up a wonderful Facebook support group. What's so wonderful is that not only do my believing friends read that, but my coworkers, people that uh, have been friends with me from other realms, occasionally I'll write a blog. And what I find is when you're in a serious situation where there's suffering, you have a greater voice. So they're hearing words of scripture and godly teaching and the gospel that I'm able to share the basics of faith and how the Lord has worked in my life. There are relationships where I have time because a lot of my life has stopped and I'll have wonderful time to meet with folks over coffee or tea and visit and enjoy more of those times of prayer and encouragement. So I see God producing good fruit in the lives of family and friends and reaching people that I may not have been able to reach. At first I asked, why me? <laughs> but now I say, why not me? Everyone at the chemo clinic is just as surprised as I am to be there. Many have prayed for my healing and I welcome that. But right now, the greatest miracle is the daily joy and peace that God gives me in my heart. I'm not afraid. And for this, I'm really thankful. Well, very grateful to uh, April for sharing her story with us. And I, I love how it just reflects what we're, what we're talking about today, doesn't it? Um, believers are being encouraged. Unbelievers are hearing the gospel. And, and uh, I would just add, um, coming to faith. Uh, I love basically what, what April says is exactly what Paul is saying here. Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. And I love how he just kind of tacks that on. Yes. In case, in case you're like, what? Yes, and I will rejoice. Because the key to joy in adversity is focusing on what really matters, on what is eternal, and proclaiming that, even when it's not easy. So my question for you as we close is this. Where do you need to do that this week? I want to encourage you to make it your goal to have a gospel conversation this week, regardless of your circumstances, regardless of uh, if, if, if it's difficult, if it's tough, to be like Paul. Because I can tell you this, there, there are people that God has strategically placed in your life who need you to do this. They need you to step up and to say what you know, what you have found to be true. And I love the fact, I was thinking this week, you know, um, given the fact that 90% of believers haven't shared their faith in the last year, I just love, like, we could just completely shatter that as a church in one week. Just in seven days, every one of us could go out and have a conversation. I know there's some place we could have that. The question is, will we make that choice? Will we share that good news? And will we experience the joy that comes from that? Let me pray for us.